This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I am joined for a second time by Sean McElwee, Overton window mover, abolish ice activist, and co-founder of Data for Progress. Glad to have you on again. And I hopefully didn't butcher your name this time. No, thanks for having me. Of course. Now, a quick note to our listeners. We are recording this on Sunday, July 1st. Happy July. News is coming out at a very fast pace. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some updates on what we're talking about by the time folks listen in. With that being said, let's start out with the big victory on Tuesday, June 26th. What happened and why does it matter? Yeah. So um, up until this election in the cycle, there had never been a Democratic incumbent who had, who had lost a primary challenge, um, despite actually um, multiple Republican incumbents losing primary challenges. And I think people began to sort of have this narrative of, oh, you know, there's this activism in the Democratic Party, but it, it sort of doesn't really threaten the, the established order. And I had been arguing actually for, for a good amount of time that that was the wrong way to understand what had happened so far. You know, we saw in, in Nebraska second, a sort of more establishment candidate who had previously represented the district lose a primary. Um, we had seen Dan Lipinski come within two or three points of, of losing his primary. And then um, I actually argued that the place to look for, for something like this would be in a district like New York's 14th, where Joe Crowley um, had had never really won a, a, an election, had never really been challenged, had grown increasingly distant from the district and had tried to get himself ideologically in line. But to be entirely honest, just was not taking this challenge seriously. He sent a surrogate to one of the debates and Ocasio-Cortez had been organizing in, in her community for for multiple years. And I and I know um, firsthand it had been knocking on doors uh, for at least a year, be, sort of behind the scenes. It's worth noting that there were two other pretty close primary challengers um, in, in New York's uh, ninth. Adam Bunkadeco uh, got within three points of incumbent Yvette Clark. And in the 12th, Suraj Patel hit 41% um, against Maloney. And most people hadn't even expected him to say hit 30 and what I think made the difference in that race in the 14th was, you know, more than a year of organizing. And if someone was to start, you know, a primary challenge in one of those other districts today, uh, I think that they would absolutely have a shot at knocking off an incumbent. And, and that's not just in New York. In, in any sort of place where the Democratic incumbent have, have gotten uh, sort of resting on their laurels, seen this seat as sort of a, a throne don't represent the liberal of their districts on issues like climate change to Medicare for all to the Iran deal. All those incumbents uh, are at risk of losing to a challenger now. 
Could you give us a sense of what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's platform was and how it compared to Joe Crowley's record as a congressman? Sure. I'll speak to first to the issue that I think ended up getting a lot of attention afterwards, um, which was abolish ICE. And Ocasio-Cortez didn't just sort of run on the issue in the sense that she, she put it on her campaign website. This was something that was a core part of her critique of Crowley and her argument uh, was quite simple, which is you represent a district that is roughly 30% white. You represent a district that is, um, you know, 50% um, immigrant. Why did you vote to create ICE? And why will you not vote to abolish it? And, you know, Crowley at one point called ICE a fascist agency. And then Ocasio-Cortez says, well, if you think it's a fascist agency, why the fuck won't you abolish it? Um, you know, like, what do you want? Like, well-regulated fascism? And I think that that argument was incredibly persuasive to voters. I think that for the first time, Democrats who have been deeply complicit in the creation of Trump's deportation machine have to worry about that complicity coming back to, to haunt them. But there were other things that were key. Um, Ocasio-Cortez refused to take money from corporate PACs. And, you know, she ended up having ads. She didn't have enough money to do high fee consultant ads. So she cut ads with volunteers. And, you know, you saw all these people being like, wow, this is one of the best ads I've ever seen this cycle. And it's like, it was it was not something that was done by DC consultants. And there's a very high chance that that is the reason why it was such a compelling ad is that it, it was it was like came from the heart from the, the grassroots. So she wasn't taking money from campaign consultants. She was running on things like Medicare for all. Um, she was talking about student debt, um, abolition, uh, cancellation. And she was talking about free college. She was running on, you know, the sort of leftmost platform that you could have in the Democratic Party. And I think it's fair to say she was running pretty definitively on, on what could be called a, a democratic socialist vision. Um, and I think one that was even more comprehensive in, in most ways than Sanders in the sense that she's actually, I think, much more liberal even on economic issues, but also thinks very seriously as a candidate, as a, as a politician, as an organizer about the ways that economic justice has to include um, justice for immigrants, justice for women, and justice for, justice for people of color. And you could really see that in her platform. And one other thing that's just really worth noting about Ocasio-Cortez's platform is it's really accessible on her website. If you go to her website, it's got the platform and the issues there. And it says, here are the specific pieces of legislation I'm prepared to co-sponsor. And so many politicians are terrified of telling people what votes they're ready to take, what bills they're ready to co-sponsor. And Ocasio-Cortez wasn't because she was so committed and so assured of her vision. I'm glad you mentioned that she's an organizer because that's one of the things that stood out most to me about her campaign was that she really just out-organized Crowley in a way that I, I have never really seen on a campaign before. I think just going onto her Facebook page the day before the election, she had get out the vote events for every little part of Queens and the Bronx that her district encompassed. Like, she was there. She was ready. How do you think that other progressive campaigns need to follow her lead? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the first thing is, as progressives, people who want the, the party to move left, we should really look to organizers as the ideal candidates. And the reality is, is if the DCCC is going to back white 
male small business owners. And we are finding and recruiting and running women organizers of color. We're going to win uh, most of those races um, because uh, organizers are the folks who, who know how to win. And so what Ocasio-Cortez, I think, helps do was break the idea that was very powerful in the media and also, I think, too powerful in the progressive ecosystem of what a good candidate looks like and what type of candidate actually can win elections and energize people. And you've seen after Ocasio-Cortez has won just the in profound way that that her that she speaks to voters. And I think people have this idea that there's the only person, the only type of person can to conduct to voters is like generic men. And yet she has found such a potent audience for her uh, message. And, you know, the, 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 there will be very definitive tests of, of this theory of change going forward. Um, you know, Ayanna Presley, she has less of an organizer background, but she has been uh, a councilwoman in her community for, for eight years. And she's running for Congress against an incumbent Democrat. Cori Bush in, in Missouri's first is an organizer um, who, who really talks a lot about how, how to think about racial justice and gender equity in, in the carceral state. Um, in sports abolishing eyes, and also Carrie uh, Evelyn Harris, who's running in um, Delaware Senate, who is an organizer most recently with um, Center for Popular Democracy. So we will have more tests of this theory of change coming forward. And I think people who were maybe not looking closely at these challenges um, should start looking much more closely at them. And I think that if you see more victories in, in this line, it will be increasingly hard to say that what happened in New York's 14th was sort of a fluke. And it will be easier to say this is actually um, a new direction for the Democratic Party. So that fluke narrative, it's been something that Nancy Pelosi said. It's been something you've seen a bunch of liberal op-ed pages say. There's this argument that Alexandria could have only won in New York's 14th, a heavily Democratic majority POC district. Why is that narrative bullshit? I mean, it, I sort of was joking about this, but it's like it's so weird watching people who weren't paying attention to this race, even two days before it, create a narrative after the fact. And, it, and if, if you had been close to sort of left progressive politics for a while, you would have had a pulse on this race. For, for, for a couple months, uh, you know, I, I first met Ocasio-Cortez last year um, when, she, when she was like sort of running um, and found her incredibly interesting and compelling and, and just actually just genuinely fun person to talk to and, and really had such a depth of understanding of, of the issues and actually did a, a brief interview with, you, with her that's available on Patreon in which she sort of talks about how immigration is connected to imperialism, which... I, I was just floored because I'd never heard a candidate talk like that. Um, but I mean, there were very, very clear signs um, for months ahead of time that this was this was really picking up steam. A lot of folks with a, like really smart thoughts on digital organizing and stuff were, were invested in this. And you had to think like either all of these people are making a really bad bet on the wrong horse or this campaign has legs. And it is true that I think that the fact that Crowley was so distant from the district and that this was a district that was majority POC represented by a white man set into motion this reality because I think that um, people of color are right to demand descriptive representation from the Democratic Party, particularly when the incumbent Democrat 
uh, is aloof to many issues of racial justice, as we saw with with Crowley. Um, but if you think like, oh, well, that's just a fluke. Well, I've got news for you. There are at this point more than a dozen districts that majority POC um, that have white male incumbents. So if you think that this is just a fluke, like this could happen in, you know, 10 or more districts uh, that have the same dynamic. And then there are many other districts um, that are close to majority uh, POC where this could also happen. And I, I just think that, like, if you're saying this is a fluke, then you have to you have to be prepared for at least another dozen flukes uh, of this nature uh, coming coming up. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So I'd like to dig more into the Abolish Ice movement. Sure. Her victory is obviously a huge win. I mean, Joe Crowley was expected to gun for the position of Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. And if Pelosi didn't go for it, you know, he was widely expected to win. Mm -hmm. Alex unseated the presumptive next Speaker of the House on an Abolish Ice platform. And we've really, really seen seen the movement pick up steam recently. I believe that so far, six members of Congress have called for ICE abolition, and several top Democratic senators, all who are coincidentally 2020 contenders, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, are considering it. What does this mean for the movement? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so many thoughts here. It's actually become genuinely difficult to keep up with how many people support it. I, I think that Ocasio-Cortez was really important. And I think that people really should try to avoid minimizing her role in this because, again, she ran on this very definitively. She didn't hold back. She not only had a had this as a campaign platform, she has a really well thought through uh, explanation of why she came to the position, why she believes it unequivocally. Um, she's the real deal there. And what happened to Crowley was that the party had had, I think, a reckoning on issues like the complicity in the crime bill and the complicity in financial deregulation, the complicity of welfare reform, but hadn't really grappled with the complicity in immigration reform. You know, most people don't spend a lot of time talking about the Homeland Security Act of uh, 2002, and not a lot of people talk about the IRA-IRA bill, which was the um, 
the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act that, that Bill Clinton signed. And so I think a lot of them were caught off guard and didn't sort of realize how far away they were from the base on the issue uh, of immigration and deportation. And I certainly think that this has made a lot of people realize they need to, to get correct. And a couple of things. ICE is very unpopular with the Democratic base. And that has been a key success for the movement is making ICE toxic. You had an institution, an organization that not a lot of people knew or understood much about that has now become something that every Democrat who is a sort of primary voter knows exists, knows is bad, knows is a threat to American democracy and institutions. That's been incredibly useful. I think now the big question is almost let's talk about how we can ensure that this this energy doesn't get co-opted. You know, that's going to be a, a key a key issue going forward. And the, there, are, there have been so many great organizers who have come on board to abolish ICE that are doing so much right work. United We Dream Action is, you know, doing work on this. Uh, Make the Road Action is doing work on this. The Center for Popular Democracy has just released a blueprint for abolish ICE. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy for politicians to come out in favor of it. I'm so excited for them to do so. And I'm so excited that we can now pivot from this is just this fringe idea to how do we make sure that this retains the central aim of dismantling a white supremacist immigration policy and not just changing the name. And that means fundamentally that deportation has to be off the table. We have to make sure that we are continuing to contest deportation and end deportation. So could you tell us a little more about that? Because co-opting is really a huge concern. I think we've already seen it happening with members of Congress who are saying abolish ICE, but what they really mean is replace it and just have another agency detain and deport people. Why is deportation inherently cruel? Why is detainment inherently cruel? Why do we need to get rid of these practices altogether rather than just the agency? Yeah, abolish ICE really comes out of, I mean, it's worth noting first off that ICE has been contested from its existence. 10 Democratic senators um, voted against the establishment of ICE, and the majority actually of the Democratic caucus in the House voted against um, the legislation that created ICE. Um, And since it's been in existence, um, there have been uh, immigrants' rights groups that are organizing um, not, I think, often under the sort of frame of abolish ICE, but under the frame of things like not one more and ending deportation um, and reducing funding or even ending funding f- for ICE as an institution. And abolish ICE comes out of that organizing and it comes out of the fact that the central thing in our immigration system that people organize around is deportation. Because uh, I know you all have seen it. Uh, we've seen it in New York. It's so... It so tears at the fabric of community uh, at the community that it becomes an issue that that is very concrete that people can organize around. They can organize around specific instances of deportation, and because that that is where the movement comes from, that is how we have to center the policy aims. And so, I think that going forward, it is very key to ensure that deportation is limited. Now, what what is really important to note about this is that. Almost everyone who is being deported is being deported for a fundamentally um, civil violation. This is nothing that is in um, the criminal code and it's certainly nothing that meets like sort of a, a felony. So 
I think that the thing that like sort of people don't understand is that we choose what we criminalize in this country and we choose how we enforce those criminal statutes. So we do not have a SWAT team that goes after you for a parking violation because we think that that would be a very uh, disproportionate way to respond to parking violations. So why do we have a SWAT team that goes after you for the fundamentally civil violation of, say, overstaying uh, being in this country without documentation or, or overstaying a visa? And the reason is, is because for many white Americans, including, I would say, the president of the United States and his seniors advisors, the presence of people in this country, of people of color in the country is a seen as a threat equivalent to physical violence. And therefore, they their sort of terror of a more diverse nation means that they respond the, the, with violence. And that is what they're doing is they are they are they are trying to make a nation that is whiter through the use of state violence. And I think that people when I tell this to journalists, they sort of become terrified. And I actually love that I get to talk to journalists and sort of like give them a perspective on things that is not the perspective they normally hear. But it's actually not that hard to believe if you understand that in 2015, Jared Taylor wrote an essay in the American Renaissance, which is a white supremacist magazine, in which he argued that the way that Trump could create a white nationalist ethno state was beginning to aggressively um, use ICE to detain and deport uh, people who did not have criminal records. And his theory was basically that this would so terrify undocumented people in the country that they would end up um, self-deporting. And so there are two things to note there. One is that the self-deportation that is seen by pundits as sort of a, like a more centrist, you know, Romney-esque policy is in fact deeply white supremacist and entails an incredible amount of violence. The second thing to note, though, is that the policy that Jared Taylor describes in that article is indistinguishable from the policies that the Trump administration is pursuing. And it's not hard for me to believe that Stephen Miller, who is a white supremacist, read the ideas that other white supremacists were thinking about and decided to make that part of the U.S. immigration policy. So we have a white supremacist immigration policy and we have an agency, ICE, which is detaining journalists, which is trying to undermine democratically elected politicians, which overwhelmingly supports Trump, which has indicated that it is in every way a Trumpist institution and which has shown itself to be um, basically incapable of being regulated um, or restrained by the law or by Congress. And that means you have to abolish it. Given that a majority of the Democratic caucus voted against founding ICE, why has there been such reluctance to oppose ICE now? Why is Bernie Sanders one of the handful of senators who voted against founding ICE, hedging on the question of ICE abolition? Yeah, uh, the majority of the Democratic caucus in the, in the House, I believe, I'd have to, I should actually double check that. Um, it was certainly a a strong plurality, if not a majority, um, but only 10 Democratic senators. The Democratic Senate caucus tends to be much more conservative. But the point you're making is entirely correct, which is given that ICE was so contested when it was formed, why is it seen as something that we should not be contested now? Honestly, I have no idea. Like it's, um, you know, there's a lot of theories in political science about how sort of once an agency gets established, it, it sort of gains legitimacy. It sort of gains a network to support it, it sort of gains 
civil servants um, who have incentives to keep it around. It gains people who are using their former ties to ICE uh, as sort of, you know, lobbying. I mean, like, look, like there are people who worked at ICE under Obama who are now lobbyists who know Democratic Congress people who said whose way that they make money is that they lobby for ICE. And it's not actually that surprising that, in fact, some of the most aggressive support from ICE has come from, you know, people who uh, lobby on on behalf of ICE. Uh, But that can't explain all of it. It, It's also just a sort of a sort of instinctive small C conservatism that most politicians have uh, when it comes to, to these sorts of issues. And it's a small C conservatism that is that no longer fits with what we're actually experiencing in this country. And, you know, I, I think that if you if you talk to like Mark Pocan, it's very clear why why it makes sense to support ICE, abolishing ICE. He said, look, like, even if we give them like the benefit of the doubt that this is supposed to serve some sort of national security interest, how does sitting outside of a head start, you know, in my district uh, protect national security? How does picking up someone dropping off their, their daughters at school support national security? And, and so for so many House members, it sort of clicked that there's really no legitimate purpose for this organization. And, and I think it'll start clicking more and more. The one thing I will say is that ICE uses its sort of um, the, the nature of the agency to gain political influence. So, so let's just limb through what that means. H, uh, ICE is split into two um, parts. There's ERO, which is Enforcement and Renewal Operations. That's really what does the deportation. That's the thing that people are most upset about. Then there's the HSI, which is the Homeland Security Investigations. That does everything from cybercrime to the sort of stuff you'll see in trafficking to the stuff of they actually try to make sure that um, the counterfeit NFL merch doesn't get sold. To be clear, HSI very frequently oversteps its boundaries and it does do sort of authoritarian things. It is not a perfect agency in any way, and it should not be seen as one by progressive activists or politicians. However, it is something that democratic politicians can pretend has a legitimate function in our society. And that is sort of what they use. And in fact, there were some leaked talking points recently that shows that for the centrist Democrats who don't want to abolish ICE, that is the sort of tact they're going to use. They're going to say, oh, we still need the things that HSI is doing, even if we need to rein in ERO. So I think that that is the the sort of thing that gives the ICE the sort of semi-legitimacy that it still has uh, within much of the Democratic caucus. But I do think that the fact that ICE is so unpopular and is becoming more so really is a way for the movement to sort of push forward to abolition. And we need to make sure at the same time that the, those, um, the tasks that the agency is currently doing um, are not reconstructed elsewhere. Just yesterday, we saw a huge wave of protests across the country around Trump's family separation policy, but also some of them regarding ICE. There's a lot of abolish ICE posters you'll see. Could you tell us kind of about what's going on in terms of protest and particularly the more radical protests like Occupy ICE? Yeah, yeah. I would say that there's definitely... 
I mean, I think that abolish ice is a very good framework for thinking about things. I think that it is, you know, I don't want to get like too George Lake off or anything like that, but it's a very clear demand. It is that we have an agency that is, is not serving any interest for the American public other than like the sort of portion of the American public that wants to see ethnic cleansing and we should abolish it and we shouldn't try to reform it. And we, we can't rein it in. We know that because it exists under Obama and it was doing awful things then. I think that the sort of just the fundamental brutality of what it means to deport people is becoming clearer. And it's no longer just words. It's images that people have to see and have to grapple with. And they have to understand that the, they've been told a lie that deportation was something that was not brutal um, and that there was a way to sort of like, you know, they were told a lie about felons, not families, because there really is no distinguishing in the minds of the people who want to engage in ethnic cleansing. And that's what they're doing. Um, and so I think that that's been very useful. And it, it's always good to have a movement that has people who are, you know, just normies who are just mad. Cause like that tells you that you've like, you've hit a, uh, you've hit a vein that it could actually be very politically salient, but we also have to have solidarity with the people who are occupying because um, these occupations are very useful. In fact, they are, they are throwing, they're very literally throwing their bodies on the gears of this deportation machine. They are facing prison time for it. We now know that ICE has been retaliating against them um, by denying due process, denying access to lawyers. The the police have been engaging in, in brutal tactics against these occupiers. Um, they have been attacking and beating occupiers. At the end of the day, the occupiers are, are performing a very valuable um, action, which is physically making it more difficult to deport people and their voices are part of this movement and absolutely need to be understood um, because they are very centrally taking aim at uh, at deportation. Something I think that's very interesting is you've been talking on Twitter about prosecuting ICE and that kind of brings me back to a point you made about complicity, you know, the Democrats who did vote to found ICE. I definitely am all for, um, you know, holding ICE agents accountable, holding the people who have dedicated their lives off of profiting from this. But what about the members of Congress who voted for this? What about the military contractors, the people who are in power who've enabled this for 15 full years. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I think that the prosecution of ICE shouldn't be seen as a, as a particularly radical call. Um, you know, we know now um, that there is pretty rampant sexual assault in ICE detention. We know that multiple people that died from, from denial of medical care, all of which would reach you know, traditional thresholds for, for prosecution, almost certainly. We need to investigate these abuses for to have justice. And Ocasio-Cortez actually was one of the few candidates who, who actually did call for um, a investigation of human rights abuses. And, and I, when I talked to her after the election, she, she said, she reiterated that that was something that she would like to introduce legislation to see happen. So, yeah, in order to have justice, we do have to have those investigations. Um, uh, there's been reports of retaliatory solitary confinement um, to essentially get women to recant credible allegations of sexual assault. Solitary confinement is, is torture. 
and, and retaliatory solitary confinement is is certainly a human rights abuse. So so there there is uh, I think very very strong evidence that that warrants an investigation uh, and prosecution of, of crimes that are discovered in that investigation. Politicians who voted for ICE, I think that what we should do is we should vote them out of office. Um, we should we should make this an issue that you face political consequences for having supported. Um, and if you want to get right, you're going to have to lead all the more on the on the issue. Um, but I think that it's not just voting for ICE. It's not just voting for IRA. IRA. It's voting for omnibus bills that fund detention. Would that should be contested? If you're a member of the House, you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're voting for the omnibus because you want, you know, um, the ag bill. You have to vote against it if it is increasing funding for ICE. That that should be a baseline position for the Democratic Party. And if 30 House members start saying, "I will not vote for an omnibus bill that increases funding for ICE," and in fact, as a demand. I need ICE budget to be halved immediately. If 30 Democrats started saying that, we would actually have a potential to begin defunding this deportation machine. And that is what people should demand from from Democrats in Congress. And if those Congress members are not willing to take that stance and they're representing districts that are threatened by ICE, they're representing districts that are 15, 20, 30 points um, Democrat, then absolutely they should be primaried for, for not standing up for, for immigrant justice. So speaking of accountability, I think it's great seeing Alexandria go in to Congress. We're seeing her with a big voice, with a lot of power, but a concern activists have that's valid, we talked about this on the last podcast, is how to hold politicians accountable, how to keep pushing them. How are we supposed to do that with Alex and with other politicians like her? Yeah. The first thing I would say is that it's really important to note that the fact that Alex ran for the Democratic outline, I don't think fundamentally changes the question of accountability. And I make that argument because of the context of New York, we've actually had candidates who ran on the working families party line. And having that ballot line that was independent was supposed to help us as, as the left and as progressives have more ability to constrain them. And we've actually found that there's hasn't been a lot of that that's actually happened. Um, so I just want to note first that the ballot line, having a separate ballot line doesn't seem to me like it's going to do much to increase accountability. So we actually have to start beginning to think through other theories of change and other ways by which we can hold Congress members accountable. Um, I think the first one is actually just primary challenges. I think like being able to primary a candidate is, is very powerful way to hold them accountable. And I think AOC um, will be very sensitive to that because she knows that it can be done. Uh, I think that one thing that should be a more contested space is advisors and aides to candidates and incumbents. One of the things that I found just while reporting for uh, Abolish ICE and, and sort of being in those spaces more and more is the extent to which having a really solid advisor or or someone in the inner circle of the campaign that is really pushing for an issue makes a really huge difference. And it's not something we spend a lot of time thinking about, but one of the things I'm the most thrilled about with, with AOC being in Congress is just starting to see like, what, what difference does it make to have someone who has an, a circle of advisors that are much closer to the concerns of democratic socialists and organizers of color um, and abolitionists of, 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 
all sorts from prison to, to police. What what does having those voices really well represented in our circle um, mean? And if those rep- voices aren't represented in the inner circle, that's going to be a key question uh, of accountability. Absolutely, no doubt. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, the way that you determine and de- define accountability for an, a, a campaign like this is that at the end of the day, we, the grassroots, are why you're in office. So stay correct with the grassroots. Continue not taking any sort of money from any sources that would give you reason to go against the grassroots. Make sure that you are you are you're getting the right number of town halls. Like make sure that she's coming back home and she's not just, you know, doing what Joe Crowley did, which was becoming increasingly increasingly separate from the district. I think we've already seen a lot of good steps on this. You know, um Ocasio Cortez has used the platform that she's had to to make a really strong left in the socialist position um, to the public. And she's also raising money for other candidates. You know, she's using her platform to to bring more people into Congress that I think will be a valuable form of accountability in that if you have five members of Congress who um, believe in democratic socialist principles, then you can say, hey, other four candidates are all, are all these other four Congress members who believe in democratic socialist principles are all signed on to this piece of legislation. Why aren't you signed on to this piece of legislation? So having numbers actually creates um, a sense of accountability because it means that each of those candidates have to articulate a career reason to the left for w- why they are taking positions. The, as of now, the left never has had that. There's never been an ability to sort of ask a candidate, even one as great as Bernie Sanders, as to like, here's another vision that's being presented to the left. Like, why aren't you on board with this part of the vision? Like, articulate the reasons for that. And that's just something that's going to be so exciting, particularly if we have candidates like Presley or Harris um, or Bush win, we'd actually begin to sort of you know, it's, I don't want to say like it's a free market, but like we would have a sort of market for idea, uh, for ideas where each of these, these, these candidates who are claiming to have the, the voice to speak for the left, to represent the left, would have to explain to the left like why their vision for legislation is correct. So lastly, how can folks get involved in these movements we've been discussing and where can they find you online? So I am online on Twitter um, at Sean McAwee. And I am working right now in partnership with Make the Road Action. Um, we've re- just launched an organization called AbolishIce.org. Uh, we sell really cool Abolish Ice t-shirts, like the one that I, I wear all the time. Um, and all the money from that goes directly to groups like Make the Road Action and United We Dream Action that are on the front line of ice abolition. It's very easy to get involved in campaigns um, just on a volunteer basis of whatever time that you have. And I think what, what I've seen so many times is once folks get involved in the knocking on doors and, and other parts of the campaign, they'll find that they have skills that they're using um, in their day-to-day life that can really improve the campaign. And one thing that we've seen that's been so exciting with campaigns like Ocasio-Cortez and, and Patel um, is how open they are to like hearing new ideas for sort of non-traditional methods of organizing and reaching out to folks and how um, they've been really able to sort of like take those new insights from from young folks and young progressives and young socialists and 
the talents of young progressives and, and young socialists and put those to use there. You know, there are so much you can do, even if there um, you don't have sort of mobility. There are so many ways to engage online. Um, you know, we've had everything from people offering, you know, ideas on how to design stuff, um, help out with data analysis. So I would say find a candidate who really energizes you and reach out and see how you can help. And in almost every case, um, those candidates uh, will have ways to do intake. For more specific stuff on the immigration, uh, there are a lot of um, immigration clinics that, that help undocumented folks get access to, to legal counsel and legal help. If, if, if there is one in your area, in almost every case, intake, um, so just taking down information from folks, does not require you to have any um, formal legal experience. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. I always enjoy coming on. Of course. Can I do a little pitch on Data for Progress? Yes, do a pitch. Okay. <laughs> uh, also, dataforprogress.org is the think tank I run. We try to really be sort of set our agenda based on what is interesting to folks who are um, you know, on the left and in progressive spaces. So we've been tracking Abolish ICE on social media. And also we have co-released uh, co a report with um, Justice Democrats called Future of the Party. Um, it's at futurestheparty.com. And this report, I think, in a lot of ways was a blueprint for a campaign like Ocasio-Cortez's and is a sort of vision for a future of the Democratic Party that is not complicit in white supremacy and plutocracy. That's futuretheparty.com. Okay, awesome. Do you want to close it out with thanks for listening? Thanks for listening to Millennial Politics. We need young institutions and organizations and platforms. And I'm really glad that uh, Millennial Politics provides that. Okay, thank you. Now to our listeners, stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.